Grace to you and peace from God our Heavenly Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. I can imagine the nightmares that parents must have. You may have had it before, especially if you're a parent. It's the nightmare where your child goes out to see a movie with some friends, and a couple moments later, the phone rings. The distance to the phone seems oddly eternal, but you finally get there, and you pick up the receiver, only to hear the voice of a local sheriff saying, your child's been in a terrible accident. Your stomach drops. Your whole world begins to spin as you suddenly and violently awaken. You're probably sweating, probably out of breath because it seemed so real, so, so vivid. But thanks be to God, it was just a terrible dream. Now imagine that it wasn't. Imagine that this was a nightmare you couldn't wake from. Imagine that this horrific scenario was real and your child has been taken from you in a wild, incredible, violent way. There are few things as terrible and tragic as a parent having to bury the child, especially when said child is taken in a brutal way like like a car accident or a kidnapping or a school shooting. The feeling of unknown and sheer helplessness, I'm sure, is unreal. This hardly seems appropriate, I know, especially since most of us are still basking in the warm afterglow of Christmas. We've just, just celebrated the birth of our Lord and Savior, and bam, I start a sermon off like this. It's not jolly. It's not exactly cheerful. And the tragic events seem to dispel any thoughts of peace or joy that were experienced at the manger in Bethlehem. I don't know about you, but that's kind of how I've felt whenever the gospel reading that we heard moments ago follows closely behind Christmas. We have this beautiful blessing, the incarnation of the Holy One of Israel, God's own Son taking on human flesh, and then we read about this horrific tragedy. Granted, the likelihood that this so-called massacre of the innocents happening immediately after Christmas is pretty unlikely, but we do celebrate this feast day of these tiny martyrs officially yesterday, December 28th. So regardless, whenever this lesson comes up, we do tend to recall them in pretty close proximity to each other. 
So the question that comes to mind in all of this is if the mothers of those poor baby boys of Bethlehem were alive today, what would we say to them? What could you possibly say to a person who is in the midst of a suffering so debilitating, so severe as losing a child? What words of comfort could we possibly give to these mothers of Bethlehem or their modern-day counterparts? Well, to be sure, the world has plenty of things to say. There are many different platitudes that we could try to placate them who are in the midst of suffering. It was their time. That tends to be a pretty popular one. Another is, God needed another angel in heaven. Never mind the false understanding that people somehow turn into angels when they die. And then there's the seemingly pious, God sees all things, he has a plan for this. While these expressions are undoubtedly, undoubtedly a genuine attempt to bring the mourners some comfort and peace, if you've been in that situation, you know that these words are hardly comforting. That may be hard to hear. I know it was, it was definitely hard for me to hear it uh, for the first time because I looked back on my own life and I saw that I had done this too many times to count. See, these maxims, they may have a smidgen of the truth in them. After all, God does indeed have the plan. He does have the plan of salvation and he does see all things. But is this really what the person needs to hear at that moment? It may make them feel like they're being patronized and they don't want that. Let me put it another way. What if one of these mothers from Bethlehem came up to us and asked, why did God allow my child to be killed? How would we respond to that? See, when it's framed like that, our aforementioned responses seem shallow at best. And when we think about it, they are by no means faithful to the God that we serve. When we stop and think about it, when we're saying these things, sometimes our motives are a little bit selfish. We say them because to be with someone who is in mourning is uncomfortable. We want them to stop feeling sad, not only for their sake, but for ours as well, because it would make us feel better. We are uncomfortable with the idea that God could allow such things to happen to our loved ones, and so we try to defend him. You're mad at God? Why would you be mad at God? When we do this, in a sense, we try to put God into a box. And with the almighty creator of the universe, that is not a very wise thing to do. 
He is God and we are not. Whatever decision he makes, regardless of our lower story perspective, he is right and just to do it. We also say these things because, quite honestly, so often we don't know what else to say. We all know too well those terribly awkward silences. And so we try to fill them with words that we think would be comforting, but they come up short. So what could we say that wouldn't seem shallow or empty? I'm not espousing complete and utter silence in these situations. And I'm not saying that it's pointless to try to comfort someone who is in the midst of a deep mourning like that. What I am saying is that if the aforementioned has been our habit, perhaps it's time to shift our strategy. And I think Isaiah, in our Old Testament reading, gives us a pretty good method. See, as he wrote the words that we read, Israel, or more specifically Judah, was in the midst of her own deep, deep suffering. God's people had been rightly subjected to the terror that was Babylon. They'd come in like a swarm of locusts. They slaughtered a good majority of the people of Jerusalem. And then they took much of the remainder back with them to their home country as captives. That doesn't sound like a very pleasant or Christmas-like story, and yet Isaiah writes these words. So did you catch his method? He didn't try to excuse God from this terrible atrocity. He didn't try to pacify the situation with admittedly sentimentalist nonsense. He tells it like it is. I can kind of hear him speaking the words in a, in a different way, perhaps in our vernacular. This situation that you're in, it's horrible. There's no two ways about it. It may not seem like God is doing anything to help you right now. But let's recall, let's go back, let's remember. God has redeemed his people so many times before. And he has promised that he is going to take us through this as well. He doesn't leave us hanging. He doesn't abandon the people that he loves. To be sure, we may be subjected to this present suffering. We may even die. But that doesn't nullify his promises. We look to his promises and we and his record of keeping them is pretty impressive. He will not abandon us. He will not forsake us, even in the midst of this tragedy. He tells it like it is. And he reminds the people who are mourning 
of God's promises and how he has never, ever failed to keep them before. This message from Isaiah, it's for us as well. Paul wrote about it in our epistle lesson that because of that little baby in the manger, we are God's own adopted, beloved children. He loved us so much that he did not spare his own son, that little baby in the manger, but he delivered him up to death for our sakes. This is the message that we should always strive to deliver to those who are mourning with patience and tact. It's the message that we ourselves have been given and we should tell it like it is. It's the reminder of the promises that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. The promises that were sealed in our hearts and our minds in the waters of holy baptism. It's the promise that God has claimed us for his own and nothing, not even death, has the final say. It's the promise and hope that because Jesus Christ was raised and glorified on the third day as the first fruit of the resurrection, we too will be raised and glorified on that last day. As we are comforting them, and mourning with them, we point them to the manger of Bethlehem where our Lord took on flesh for our sakes. We point them to his cross where he died to spare us from our sin's penalty. We point them to the hope and the promise that we have in his empty tomb. And we remind them that they and their loved ones are sons and daughters of the resurrection and the life. Now I'll grant you, this may not seem like it could be all that comforting to the person who's mourning in the midst of their mourning. It may not necessarily dry their tears. It may not take away their sorrow immediately or cease them from wailing. However, to be perfectly frank, That's not the purpose of this proclamation. Instead, our job is to come alongside the mourner and mourn. To suffer alongside them, however uncomfortable it might be, and allow the light that was once born in a stable in Bethlehem to shine forth from us. And as we are mourning with them, we point them to the cross of Christ and the promises of the one who hung upon it. I don't need to tell you we live in a violence and broken world. However, in the midst of all this heartbreak and loss that we as Christians experience, we hope in the promises of God. We remember his faithfulness. We don't mourn like those who have no hope. We cling to our baptisms. We cling to the cross of Christ. We cling to God's promises. And we are reminded that we are 
his own beloved children and that he always keeps his word. In Jesus' name, amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all human understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.